Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where the movie God is Not Dead sold out on opening night uh. to, to a, a thrilled audience. Um, you can find us online at doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. You can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, 1680 AM, WPRR, Ada Grand Rapids, 95.3 FM, W237CZ, Hudsonville, and 88.3 FM in Pontiac, Illinois, and as always, streaming at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio, my fellow Doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Hello, everyone. And Mr. Justin Schieber. Hello. Dr. Professor Luke Galen is out doctoring a professorate or professing a doctorate or something but he'll be back he'll be back he never goes too far Uh, usually because he doesn't leave the house coming up on today's show we'll talk about cosmos we'll talk about the dearly departed fred phelps um a big win uh in michigan for proponents of uh, same-sex marriage We've also got counter-apologetics, got things like you, and an out-of-this-world stranger than fiction. And maybe a polyatheism, too, for good measure. Strap in, guys. It's going to be a long one. A meaty episode. But uh, let's start off. In our last episode, we talked about the debate between uh, Bill Nye and Ken Ham. Oh, that beautiful intellectual exchange. Yes. Immediately after we finished recording last time, I had a realization of, oh, God, there was one point I wanted to bring up that I didn't get to bring up. Mm. And I would have left it, but it's uh, it's kind of made the news now, too, because one of my biggest problems w- with this debate is the money. Where yeah. did the money go for this debate? And Where did it go? Well, it went right to Ken Ham's Creation Museum. So all of it. None of it was went anywhere else. Appar- everything I, I have found, all of the money, all the proceeds went to Ken Ham's Creation Museum, and it appears – even worse than that, oh, no. um, this report from uh, for it. Time, uh, Bill Nye the Science Guy may have inadvertently helped revive a $73 million project to build a replica of Noah's Ark. Uh, yeah. The debate brought in uh, a lot – I mean the debate itself didn't raise that much money, but it led to this – Push to get more money, and they have probably an increase in, in attendance as well. So, Absolutely. since Luke isn't here, I guess I should say that the debate helped keep the ark afloat. <laughs> uh, you, you, well, it used to be that the finances were all wet, but now they seem to uh, hold water. Oh. So, anyway, um, uh, that's that was their pitch. Yeah. <laughs> 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 On hearing the news, uh, Time Magazine reports Bill Nye said he was, quote, heartbroken and sickened for the Commonwealth of Kentucky, 
end quote. Well, if he was heartbroken sick, why did he agree to let them keep mm. all the money? That's what I don't yeah. get. That seems like – See, a- I'm, I'm totally in support of having these kind of public debates. Mm-hmm. I am not in support of just giving yeah. giving cash away to, to these ridiculous projects. A lot of money too yeah. and I, I don't know why – Bill Nye, who is you know, smarter than any of us, um, why he let that little detail slip yeah. by. Um, I mean, like we talked about last time. That could have been a lot of money going to science education. Split we could have put a camp right next door to the Creation yeah. Museum, a re-education museum, as Jeremy <laughs> said earlier. You, you know, split the money, <clears throat> give it to a good – and if, if Ken Ham can't agree to those terms – don't do the debate. The lover of science education and uh, free thought and all that is disappointed to hear this. Mm-hmm. The lover of comedy in me is kind of thrilled because <laughs> – Can we take a trip? Because now, now yeah. they don't have the excuse. Now they have the money. Right. Make it. Let's now I'm going to actually get to go to this place and see what it's like and that will be fun. Uh, hey, speaking of science education, uh, this is an exciting time. Um, in the world of science education because it's hit network television and not in the form of ancient aliens or any kind of uh, BS mumbo-jumbo like that. I'm not saying it's aliens, but right. it's but, aliens. Yeah, it could be aliens. Um, we uh, just recently welcomed back to television uh, the series Cosmos with its reboot starring Woo-hoo! Neil deGrasse Tyson. And so far... Got, I have to admit, two episodes have been on. Third one's on tonight. I haven't gotten to watch much of it yet because I'm trying to watch it with I haven't the seen the second one. Yeah. Jeremy's the only one who's seen them both. Yeah, I, I guess I'm the one that's getting ready like with my mm-hmm. favorite turtleneck and uh, <laughs> really excited for this. I have a it's, DVR. it's absolutely gorgeous. It yeah, is, it the is. show oh, it looks is just phenomenal. It's beautiful. As I've never seen the, anything. The fairly dated look of the original 1970s yeah. version. This looks. Which was not bad for its time, no, but no. this is, yeah, with the special effects. I just would have resurrected Sagan for it. <laughs> or cloned him. <laughs> uh, I tried to watch the original with my kids a few years back, and they were, they were pretty young at the time, but. That was that was rough going. Um, yeah, it doesn't play well for the younger crowds. No, so this is this is great, and I'm once this is available on DVD, I will own it, and I will buy copies of it for my kids when they go off on their own. And you know, this is a very cool thing to have out there, which doesn't mean that everyone's as happy about it as uh, I am. What you mean? Some people are not happy about science education. Well, you know, th- there's actually. Two sides of people that are complaining about this. We'll talk about the uh, the bigger portion, which is the people who just don't like science. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of a lot of atheist nitpickers out there, and not just atheists, yeah. I suppose, but science science minded people who are watching the series and expecting it to be like a peer reviewed journal article. And it's not. It's popularized science, and I feel like yeah. the people complaining about it are the same people who were keeping Carl Sagan down for all those years of you can't popularize science, blah, blah, blah. I mean, not that it's wrong to critique a show Hmm. like this, even if it's on our side. Uh, Somebody accused me of boosterism (laughs) online (laughs) for getting upset with some of the nitpicking comments. I think my point was uh, to people was more that, look, this is a show that's really – it's a form of outreach. Yeah, Uh, Science buffs are going to be coming to watch this. But it's not really meant for them. No. 
This is not for us. They, they know this stuff. Yeah. This picture of the world that's painted by science, we already appreciate how wonderful, awesome, and beautiful it is. There's a lot of people who don't know that. Mm-hmm. And this a show is – this don't know Yeah. That. This show is aimed at kind of lighting that spark in their minds mm-hmm. and encouraging them to go out and research further. When you look at the series from that perspective, it's an incredible success. It's mm-hmm. it's beautifully well done. It argues passionately for science and it talks about some of the really cool, mind-blowing features of our cosmos. So uh, I, I think it's – I think it's definitely successful for the audience it's geared at. Yeah, there are moments where I'm watching. I'm like, I can't believe he didn't say this. Or I would have explained this a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. But you know what? You're not Neil deGrasse Tyson. That's right. <laughs> and there's probably a reason why I'm not Neil deGrasse yeah, really. Tyson. Is I'm pretty sure they would change the channel if I was up there droning about it. it. It's the mustache, mostly. That's what separates you from Neil. But, uh, yeah, what, one thing I saw people griping about is he referred to, like, the time of Moses or something like that. Yeah. And how dare he not say, by the way, Moses is probably just a figure of legend and probably didn't actually exist. <laughs> yeah. Come on, We didn't yeah. miss the point on that one. Yeah. Oh my God. It's um, not like he has to take every opportunity <laughs> available to him. <laughs> Shit all over yeah. religion. Yeah. And you know what? The original, the original Cosmos series didn't either. Right. Uh, Carl Sagan had a beautiful episode about Kepler and how his religious beliefs inspired him to search for scientific truths. One of his episodes on cosmology hmm. had a decent chunk, maybe a quarter of the episode devoted to Hindu cosmology and Hindu artwork. And uh, that was part of the broad cross-cultural appeal of the original series. And that's the other thing people need to realize uh, about this show is it's not just for Americans. This has a broad international release. (laughs) Back it up, Jeremy. It's had a broad uh, international release in you know dozens of languages, like the original Cosmos, which which is still running almost twenty four seven throughout the world. You can find Cosmos on the air at one time. um, I don't know if it's still true anymore, but from its original air date until the early two thousands, it was on. It was broadcast on television. 24 hours a day hmm. somewhere in the world. Wow. Told to me by Andrew. And so that seems uh, either she was she inflating would it or she's the only person or certainly one of the people in a position to know. So this is this is for everyone. Oh, I still got a crush on Andrea. And she may be getting up there in age, but man. She, she hugged me. Man. Oh, really? Yeah. I am totally jealous. She totally hugged me. She's very sweet and tiny and adorable um, and Damn brilliant! But uh, um, did you guys ever listen to that uh, the NPR episode? That's why she hugged me. The okay. Radio Lab, yeah, where that, she tells oh, the that, story about her oh brain. Oh, that brought tears to my I, eyes. I, yes, and I, I walked up to her. I was at a CFI conference. I walked up to her and I said, "I just heard you on Radio Lab telling the story." And it made me ball my mm-hmm. eyes out. She said, "Come here," and she. Oh, oh me, my gosh. It was so sweet. Yeah. That, um, I listen to that every once in a while. And oh, it's amazing. Makes me happy. It's amazing. And and she, of course, is very involved with the new Cosmos series oh, as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, as much as she she's writing. She's writing one. the vast majority yeah. of it. And, yeah. Now, 
how about um, the other side of the fence? Those people who who don't even like the idea of us oh, talking about science. Goodness, mm. the the creationists and just you know the fundamentalists in general are just losing their heads about this. It's, how dare he not say at the beginning of every sentence, "God did this," <laughs> yeah. and then yeah, the the second episode was about evolution. Mm-hmm. There was a conservative uh, radio talk show host who was railing on and on about how. Uh, how they're not giving equal time to the creationist <laughs> perspective <laughs> on the Cosmos series. Did, did they even mention it? Yeah, people who, who doubt this. And, but not, here's and, their quote-unquote theory of how the world came to be. No, they, he mentioned things like uh, some people believe that the eye could not be mm-hmm. – could not have evolved through natural selection. Well, here's how the eye evolves through natural selection. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, there's uh, kind of nods to the fact that there's people out there who don't believe this but to well, show them that they're wrong. Well, once once evolution gets equal time in their churches, then we'll, we can talk, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very fair. <clears throat> yeah, one, one uh, article in particular I wanted to talk about was um, – the uh, evolutionnews.org. Very uh, misleading title. Yes, yes. It has links to the Discovery Institute. Several of the writers there work are on staff uh, at the Discovery Institute. And uh, Casey Luskin is one of them and wrote a critique. Uh, Cosmos Episode 2, Mindless Evolution Has All the Answers. If you don't think about it too deeply, <laughs> and it was a, a really frustrating takedown of the episode for me. Part of the reason why I got so upset at reading this article is because it would appear to somebody that he did a really thorough job critiquing it. It appears to be a fantastic debunking of the show uh, if you don't go and look up his references. Right. There's there's basically three big arguments in this piece. Uh, the first is. Just a blatant straw man. He opens up by charging Cosmos with claiming that evolution can do anything. And he says leading evolutionary biologists actually though concede that natural selection faces clear limits on just how far a species can evolve. So here's a quote from the the article. Tyson wants you to believe that natural selection provides all the answers for everything since life arose. Just as he did in episode one – he overstates his case. The great evolutionary biologist Ernest Mayer explains precisely why Tyson is wrong. And so now he's quoting Ernest Mayer here. Uh, some enthusiasts have claimed that natural selection can do anything. This is not true. It is evident that there are definite limits to the effectiveness of natural selection. And then what the article writer does next is a really sneaky move. He goes on to say that uh, Mayer makes one of his most important points in the context of artificial selection of dogs, which is how the episode Cosmos actually began. It's how Darwin started his book. And so he's framing this as Mayer's critique. He goes on to say uh, the textbook Explore Evolution actually explains this critique. Explore Evolution is a textbook written by intelligent design proponents. They're so good at naming yeah. stuff. So they're mentioning Ernest Mayer. Mm-hmm. And then what they do is they sk- they switch to a text by Stephen Meyer, oh. very closely, <laughs> very yeah. and it's it's you're kind of <clears throat> left with the impression, though he never explicitly says it. Mm-hmm. You're left with the impression that this is this is Mayer's mm-hmm. argument. The quote from the evolution textbook: 
focuses on uh, some of the failures of dog breeding. Brief snippet from the quote, intense programs of breeding and inbreeding frequently increase an organism's susceptibility to disease and often uh, concentrate defective traits. Breeders working with English bulldogs have strived to produce dogs with, la- with large heads. They've succeeded. These bulldogs now have such enormous heads that puppies sometimes have to be delivered by cesarean section. Newfoundlands and Great Danes are both bred for large size. Now they have bodies too large for their hearts and can suddenly drop dead from cardiac arrest. Darwin's theory states that unguided forces of natural selection are supposed to be able to do what the intelligent breeder can do. But even a process of careful, intentional selection encounters limits that neither time nor efforts of the human breeders can overcome. Darwin's theory requires that species exhibit a tremendous elasticity or capacity to change, Critics point out this is not what the evidence from breeding experiments show. Well, first thing about that is that this is a straw man claim to begin with. Uh, Tyson never claims evolution can do anything. In fact, one of the most powerful portions of that episode is where he points out that we have eyes that evolved to work in fish, that, that evolved to work in the oceans, and now we are on land. And evolution can't just re-engineer or redesign an eye from the ground up. There are constraints placed on what can evolve mm-hmm. uh, from I, what comes before it. So the the point uh, to begin with is kind of deceptive. But about this idea that the species themselves – because I think what he's implying here is that one species can't evolve into another. There's this kind of upward limit. The more we transform these dogs, oh, we I prove see. that we can't just turn them into anything we want. Well, that's – Artificial selection, mm-hmm. yeah, and they're not being bred for survival or reproduction. Right. <laughs> they're being bred for these traits Cuteness. that they would never have in nature. Yeah, how is natural selection even a factor in dog breeding? This right. is this is intelligent design is is what they're actually doing. Right. The point of bringing up dog breeding was to just show a familiar example of how certain diversity can mm-hmm. uh, how much diversity you can get in a population right. over time. But to use it as an argument. For for how yeah. evolution fails, really missing the it's point. It's not evolution. So I think suspecting that this point isn't going to make it, he then goes on to quote perhaps a more serious passage, this time actually from a legitimate scientist. It was assumed that natural populations are endowed with essentially an unlimited additive genetic variance, implying that any sort of selection imposed by an environmental changes will encounter abundant genetic variation on which to act. Uh, this model was extended to evolutionary time as well as ecological time. This way of thinking ignored the substantial evidence from selection experiments that the response to selection of any trait essentially comes to a halt after a number of generations as the genetic variance for the trait in question is depleted. So in other words, yeah, there is a genetic upward limit to how far you can push these traits. They're just natural genetic variability we have in our DNA can't do the whole process of evolution. We exhaust that over time. So you're saying no X-Men? Yeah. Okay. But here's the last line of the quote, which I'm somewhat stunned he even left in. Further progress depends on the introduction of new variants either through outcrossing, Mm -hmm. which is the introduction of new genetic material, or new mutations. (laughs) Exactly. So another, so another generation. Word, this is nothing more than a case that natural genetic variability is not enough 
to push the evolution of species beyond a certain point. It says nothing about mutations or these other, you know, uh, things that are the key to evolution. (laughs) The article writer here goes on to say, we cannot simply assert the evolution can just do anything or all that we want it to. Uh, there are limitations to how far breeders can change organisms. If we take artificial selection as an analogy for what can happen in the real world, shouldn't this suggest there are limits on evolution also? And then this this part pisses me off so much. I'm sure Tyson would reply, we can overcome genetic barriers through mutations. It's uh, basically like he really said that. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> he says – no, that's what he says. That wasn't me. That last well, passage. He says fair <laughs> enough. We, we might disagree with Tyson that natural selection is the most revolutionary concept in the history of science. But no ID proponent denies that natural selection is an important idea. The difference between ID proponents and evolutionists like Tyson is that ID proponents acknowledge that natural selection is a real force in nature, but we don't just unconditionally grant it the power to do all things. Instead, we test forces. So he's made no point at all in this entire thing except poisoning the well. Mm -hmm. Putting words into Neil deGrasse Tyson's mouth. As what? A rhetorical pitch for saying, well, we're, you know, we acknowledge the limits. Well, so do the scientists. Right. Tyson's not going to get into genetic drift, horizontal gene transfer, and all these other things in a 45-minute introduction to people who have never even heard the theory before. The next argument they make, I'm not really going to get into because it's it's actually the typical stuff of intelligent design creationism. They go on to make the case that – Mutations couldn't happen fast enough. They evoke the same set of studies that we debunked in our interview with Ken Miller oh. a couple years back. And uh, and honestly, for that section, any interested or curious readers probably already know what to do, which is just highlight their reference, Google it, along with Panda's Thumb or Talk <laughs> Origins. I, I tried this for the first three of five arguments I encountered and right away – Studies came up showing how just absurd the conditions on which these uh, intelligent design proponents base their studies are were just silly. The last part of his case is the one that uh, – I just hate this. Let me just go get right into it. This pissed me off. He's so mad. I, 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 uh, I am upset. I need to calm down a bit. But I spent – this is how I spent my Saturday night oh, was going geez. through this. So so I'm, I'm still a little bit jaded. We we party like no one else. Yeah, I know, don't we? We party hard on this. Justin cast. went to see God is not dead. <laughs> Jeremy stayed up all night uh, reading intelligent design literature. Yeah. Dave, what did you do? I sat at home and watched um, a costume drama. Here's the final part of the article. The second episode of Cosmos showcased quite a lot of evolutionary apologetics. What do I mean by that? I mean attempts to persuade people of both evolutionary scientific views and the larger materialistic evolutionary beliefs, not just by force of evidence but by rhetoric and emotion and especially by leaving out important contrary arguments and evidence. This episode focused its evolutionary apologetics on the tree of life. And then he goes on to say that the tree of life lays in tatters now, according to the scientific community. Even biologists themselves do not accept this notion of a tree of life. In fact, the evidence argues against it. And I was actually taken aback by this at first. He quotes an article out of The New Scientist with some pretty juicy quotes here. So if you'll be patient with me, I want to read through this because it does sound, again, to somebody who doesn't know how to Google – 
This sounds really, really persuasive. A 2009 uh, article in New Scientist concluded that – and by the way, this is no longer available on the New Scientist website. So it's really, really hard to check his references. I dug up a copy uh, and was able to read it. But for the average person out there on the internet, they're not going to be able to read the original context of this article without – Paying for a subscription, that is. So a uh, 2009 article in New Scientist concluded that the tree of life, quote, lies in tatters torn to pieces by an onslaught of negative evidence. Why? Because one gene yields one version of the tree of life while another gene gives another sharply conflicting version of the tree. The article explains what's going on. This is, I guess, our quoteception portion of the, <laughs> of the show. For a long time, the Holy Grail was to build a tree of life, says Eric Baptiste, evolutionary biologist at Marie Curie University in Paris, France. A few years ago, it looked as if the grail was within reach, but today the project lies in tatters, torn to pieces by an onslaught of negative evidence. Many biologists now argue that the tree concept is obsolete and needs to be discarded. Quote, we have no... Further quote, man, we're three quotes down in this quote section. (laughs) We have no evidence at all that the tree of life is a reality, says Baptiste. The bombshell has even persuaded some that our fundamental view of biology needs to change. Holy shit. What is this? The problem begins in the early 1990s when it became possible to sequence actual bacterial genes rather than just RNA. Everybody expected these DNA sequences to confirm the RNA tree and sometimes they did but crucially, sometimes they did not. RNA, for example, might suggest that species A was more closely related to species B than species C but a tree made from DNA would suggest the reverse. The problem is rampant in systematics today. An article in Nature reported that disparities between molecular and morphological trees lead to evolution wars because evolutionary trees constructed by studying biological molecules often don't resemble those drawn up from morphology. It goes on and on and on and then the the article writer for the Discovery Institute says, don't expect Neil deGrasse Tyson and Cosmos to disclose to viewers that there are problems with reconstructing a grand tree of life. They need to maintain the pretense that mindless evolution provides all the answers, even while disclaiming the fact that they're making such a brash claim. By the way, I love that he keeps using mindless evolution instead of unguided or anything. Right. It's very – I mean it's poisoning the well. Just, yeah, just yeah by, by subtle selection of mm-hmm. terms. Well, wow. But if that's true and this is quoted from a serious science magazine, these are legitimate biologists. You know, yeah. that's, that's some scary stuff mm. because we're kind of told the opposite. Neil deGrasse Tyson even went up there and says, hey, look, when you look at the DNA and how it all is mapped out, it maps on perfectly to what we would expect – this tree of life, though. Yeah, look so it, at it appears by, to be undermining yeah. the kind of independent att- attestation of these really serious fields. charge. So I looked up the article and read more about it. It's all about horizontal gene transfer. This is a good kind of tool in your critical thinking toolbox for intelligent design claims. Almost all the time, if you see a scientist, a real one, being quoted by creationist literature, here's what you do. Find the reference and read the next paragraph mm-hmm. <laughs> because they inevitably left out something very, very important and exactly what I expected to happen. I looked up the article. The very next paragraph after their quote says this, which was correct, meaning the RNA version or the DNA version. Paradoxically, both were correct, but only if the main premise underpinning Darwin's tree was incorrect. Darwin assumed that descent was exclusively vertical, 
with organisms passing traits down to their offspring. Mm. But what if species also routinely swapped genetic material with other species or were hybridized with them? Then that neat branching pattern would quickly degenerate into an impenetrable thicket of interrelatedness with species being closely related in some respects but not others. And this is exactly what happens. As more and more genes were sequenced, it became clear that patterns of relatedness could only be explained if bacteria were routinely swapping genetic material with other species, Mm. often across huge taxonomic differences. Now – that's what we're talking about here. <laughs> and the article actually goes on to say actually the tree of life is a great educational metaphor yeah. for plant and animal life. Sure. Since most of life is uh, unicellular here on earth, then yes, what uh, a better metaphor for that would be a web. Right. But all these evolution wars they're talking about in those quotes that he alludes to comes down to what is the better analogy? Mm-hmm. Is yeah. the tree a better analogy or is a web a better analogy? And they point out, you know, again, for most animal and plant life, this is a great way to talk about it. There is some horizontal gene transfer even in animal life, right? We can have hybridization going on with plants or even with interbreeding certain species. Mm-hmm. Again, it's not perfect. But that's what it boils it's down to. It's an analogy. To. If it you read have to be perfect. The Discovery Institute article makes it sound like this entire evidentiary basis for evolution. Chop down that tree. It's just – yeah. Instead of uh, a debate over what's the best it's metaphor. Not, it's not a perfect analogy. At which you know, actually looking back at it is a bit ironic since intelligent design, its entire evidence for its case boils down to an appeal to an analogy, yeah. an analogy yeah. with an intelligent designer. Mm-hmm. And they're going to nitpick uh, evolution, which ha- its metaphor of the tree of life is actually based on sound evidence. It isn't the evidence itself. Good find. Good find. It was worth your Saturday night. Clearly getting desperate, but have no fear. Far more people are getting to watch Cosmos and be exposed to this message, and far more people are getting excited about it and learning more than are reading this creationist junk science. And and, and the more creationist BS that they're throwing out there in response to Cosmos, you think that's going to make people watch it less? You think that's going to make people pay less attention to Cosmos? They're right. legitimizing the debate. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> They're teaching the controversy, Dave. Oh, well, thank goodness. <laughs> Let's uh, switch topics now. And uh, on a sad note, <laughs> um, there's only one story that can follow that one, folks. Yeah, um, we uh, acknowledge that uh, this past week. We acknowledge Founder that something happened. of the uh, Westboro Baptist Church, Fred Phelps, has died. Can't say as though I'm mourning. There are people out there who, even long before he was even sick, who were saying, oh, when he dies, let's go picket his funeral because that's what he does. I don't think that's yeah. – <laughs> the right thing to do because I mean you know even uh, funnierdie.com yes. their tweet great was great I don't know the exact quote feels weird to celebrate Fred Phelps death considering that that sort of thing was basically his favorite hobby right so, yeah which I was like damn well done That's, guys yeah. I'm, I'm glad exactly. and I, I saw an enormous amount of restraint on the interwebs mm-hmm. surrounding this um, I was actually kind of inspired by that that, yeah. that people yeah. just felt like this guy was disgusting and doesn't he's not he doesn't even deserve 
the ridicule at this point. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's – what are you going to do? I mean, how is that helping anything by going yeah. to protest his funeral, by, you know, lining up to to get a blowjob on his <laughs> grave? And it's like, I mean – What? I didn't what? hear about this. Well, I mean, Did you just make that up? No, not really, but saying <laughs> A gay blowjob. Yes, man. a gay blowjob. Oh, okay. Not a straight blowjob. That, <laughs> that would be inappropriate. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> But, uh, you know, people saying things like that, and, and I get it. I certainly get the the disgust and the hatred about the hate that he's been spewing. But you know what? He's dead. Let's deal with his cause that lives on. Uh, yeah. The, uh, the Westboro Baptist Church has had their first protest since his death. At a Lord concert. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and the counter-protesters showed up with a big banner that said, we're sorry for your loss. Mm. What a beautiful thing. <laughs> I love that so much. I know. And it wasn't – it, it was not intended to be a mocking thing. It was Yeah, just it didn't a, have a big smiley face and a nope. picture of Fred Phelps underground or You're going to show hate. We're going to show you love and compassion. And yeah. that's – um, it's, it's wonderful that people are responding – that way, um, it just highlights their hate even more. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, because when you match hate with hate, it looks like you know both sides are intolerant. Right. And uh, mm-hmm. people have you know found out you know we're not going to be hypocrites here, or a lot of people have. And uh, yeah, it's beautiful. You were going to read Nathan Phelps' yeah, statement, uh, uh, Nathan, which Phelps, was very touching as well. Uh, son of of Fred Phelps, who is one of the members of the family who has gotten out of the church and is now a. Uh, um, You've probably heard him on a dozen other uh, Free Thought and Atheist podcasts because he's he's made the rounds, and he has a hell of a story to tell. He went through a lot. Like if you think Fred Phelps is bad to the public, he was worse to his children, hmm. um, and uh, devastating. But um, he issued a statement about this. By the way, folks out there, Nate Phelps is one of the good guys. Okay? Oh hell yeah. I was I was reading his Twitter feed, and there was a lot of people like, "But you should at least apologize for the pain your protests brought." And oh my gosh, he has how Whoa. many times? Well, yeah, but also he never protested. Yeah, he he got out seriously. For, yeah, and it it sucks because he is he's the good guy in this story. He's oh the one God. who made it out. And you know what? As soon as as soon as people tell him that, they say, "Oh God, I'm sorry." You know. Oh, I see what you're saying. People have never heard of Nate People Phelps before. Just find him on Twitter. Oh, and oh, go, oh here's a guy. I, yeah, I, I misunderstood. Talking about how he's mourning his father. And okay, yeah. I get it. But, I get it. You know, uh, I mean, I think even his yeah, bio just, says that he's you wouldn't have you know, to convert the big whatever. picture of him on his press releases of him holding up those multicolored signs like his father's church did. Mm-hmm. But his say. Atheists hate bigotry. Uh, no gods, no problem. <laughs> and, and it's it's easy to look at Fred Phelps as just this terrible person, which he was. But he also had a family, and mm-hmm. um, Nate and the other members of the family who left the church were not allowed to see their father as he was dying. And that's difficult. No and, matter how bad yeah. your relationship yeah. with his with your parents, to not be able to have that kind of well, – to there, say goodbye, that's horrible. Well, and there's a, a lot of stuff that 
he could potentially have worked through. I mean, yeah. even if not to say, Dad, I love you, to at least say, Dad, screw you for what you did to me. Yeah. You know, I mean, he was he was kept away from having the opportunity of any kind of closure, no closure. with his father. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, here's a statement that uh, he released from uh, uh, Recovering from Religion issued this following official statement from Nathan Phelps. Quote, Fred Phelps is now the past. The present and the future are for the living. Unfortunately, Fred's ideas have not died with him, but live on, not just among the members of the Westboro Baptist Church, but among the many communities and small minds that refuse to recognize the equality of humanity of our brothers and sisters on this small planet we share. I will mourn his passing, not for the man he was, but for the man he could have been. I deeply mourn the grief and pain felt by my family members denied their right to visit him in his final days. They deserve the right to finally have closure to decades of rejection, and that was stolen from them. Even more, I mourn the ongoing injustices against the LGBT community, the unfortunate target of his 23-year campaign of hate. His life impacted many outside the walls of the Westboro Baptist Church compound, uniting us across all spectrums of orientation and belief as we've realized our strength lies in our commonalities and not our differences. How many times have communities risen up together in a united way against the harassment of my family? Differences have been set aside for that cause, tremendous and loving joint efforts mobilized within hours. And because of that, I ask this of everyone. Let this death mean something. Let every mention of his name and of his church be a constant reminder of the tremendous good we are capable of doing in our communities. The lessons of my father were not unique to him, nor will they be the last we hear of his words, which are echoed from pulpits as close as other churches in Topeka, Kansas, where WBC headquarters remain, and as far away as Uganda. Let's end the support of hateful and divisive teachings describing the LGBT community as less than, sinful, or abnormal. Embrace the LGBT community as our equals, our true brothers and sisters, by promoting equal rights for everyone without exception. My father was a man of action. I implore us all to embrace that small portion of his faulty legacy by doing the same. Hey. Brought well a tear to me. Eh? Uh, it's and, that was moving. You know what? If you want, if you want to take action in the wake of Fred Phelps' death, don't pick at his funeral. Give some money or help that's out right. an LGBT organization. Absolutely, that's right. Uh, that's the thing to do. And hey, you know what? More uh, positive news on the gay marriage front. I know. Isn't it so cool that these things happen right next to each other? We have like our most notable American bigot dying and uh, dying rather a disgraced and abandoned death too. That was well, yeah, mentioned. And, and he, he was had, actually kicked out of his own church for being so hateful. They didn't. They didn't even whoa, mind. What? They yeah, didn't even mind yeah. the target of his hate. Uh, They're like, sorry, you're just, it's just yeah, too much. It's it just, just too much. Too nasty. Oh my god. I mean, some of the other articles I read mentioned this. Like this. This was the guy that had 
the liberals KKK. and gays yeah. protesting with the KKK yeah. <laughs> because yeah. because the KKK took the Grand Wizard took a look at this and just went, man, that's that's just hateful. Yeah. <laughs> that's too much. That's there was like, a statement. There's no the excuse for that from kind of bigotry. A former Grand, grand Wizard or something saying, hey, don't compare me to this guy. Okay, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that own, dude's a hate monger. Yeah. His own church got rid he of says him. from underneath the sheet. Yeah, right. Um, but uh, you know, positive news. Here in Michigan, we had a, a court case. It was a uh, lesbian couple. And just this past week, a federal judge, a Reagan appointee federal judge, by the way, that's the one legacy that Reagan really has going for him. <laughs> he appointed some good judges. Not all of them, but some of them worked out pretty damn well. Well, some judges that turned out to be better that, over time. Well, yes, I yeah. suppose that's what yeah. it comes down to. Once they were freed from political uh, pressures. But uh, Judge Bernard A. Friedman, mm-hmm. district judge yeah. um, in guy. Detroit – struck down Michigan's anti-same-sex marriage constitutional amendment as being unconstitutional. Some counties immediately started issuing marriage license. Now, this the ruling came out Friday evening, so basically it was going to be till Monday before yeah. anyone could do anything. He did not issue a stay, but there was a very quick uh, call to the Sixth Circuit Court right. asking for a stay to be put on it, which um, has now happened until they – From our tyrannical uh, attorney general, I think, yes. who started that. Who's He's quickly becoming my least favorite man in Michigan, he's, not only for this but for a number of different well, issues. Well, the governor is pretty terrible too. The governor is pretty bad. Um, but uh, so there is a stay on the ruling until uh, this Wednesday – Here's the thing. Even if the stay that the circuit court, Sixth Circuit Court puts on lasts longer, it ain't going to last long. No. Oh, no. Every yeah. single time a case like this ha- has uh, come by, it has gone in favor of gay marriage. And this is a yeah. resounding yeah. decision from Friedman. Um, yeah, part, part of the reason why is because the attorneys for the state actually brought forward scientific arguments to try to show Our old pal homosexual – what's that? Yes. Yeah, Mark Regnerus's study yeah. basically saying the state has an interest in keeping homosexual people from marrying and having – you know, being able to adopt yeah, children. because adoption was a big factor in this as well. In because Regnerus's study suggests that children raised by homosexuals are maladapted to – many things in life. It's much harder for them to be assholes (laughs) than it is for those kids raised by straight people. (laughs) And we debunked this on the show uh, Mm -hmm. showing how what they actually did was for their survey of children raised by homosexual parents, they looked for anyone who had a parent who had had a same-sex relationship at one point while they were being raised. (laughs) So most of the times these were heterosexual couples Mm -hmm. or maybe not. They were in heterosexual marriages but had same-sex attraction. If anything, the article suggested why it's important to allow yes. mm-hmm. gays to marry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But and Friedman, Friedman caught it. Oh, yeah. The, the cro- under cross-examination, it was shown just how pathetic. Oh, yeah. yeah. And his statement was worded very, very strongly on this. Let me see if I can find the quote. Uh, the New York Times article uh, portrays it this way. Lawyers for the plaintiff described the scholars who appeared for the state as religiously motivated and part of a desperate fringe. 
and subjected them to a withering cross-examination. Judge Friedman agreed with the criticism and described the state witnesses as unbelievable and calling their studies deeply flawed. Uh, he wrote on to say – I know. I do too. I'm so in love with this judge right now. Uh, judge Friedman, citing evidence that the study had been commissioned and paid for by conservative opponents of same-sex marriage, wrote the funder clearly wanted a certain result – and Regnerus obliged. Mm-hmm. Cool. The extensive trial record could strengthen Judge Friedman's ruling in the appeals process, and his assessment of research records is likely to be cited in other cases. This is why I don't mind the stay or the appeal, because because this is actually just going to work out. He delivered such a strong ruling here. Yeah. The appeal is just playing into our hands at this point, mm-hmm. right? It, it's looking as if we're going to reach that kind of tipping point, mm-hmm. or, or we've already gone past it. Well, and if not just for the state of Michigan, right? This for the country includes Ohio I mean, is, and who else is in this district? It's a pretty big. Oh yeah, but district, this is so. if they keep appealing this yeah. and bring it to the Supreme Court, yeah. you it's going to eventually have to go. like that, and it's going to. And yeah. and this yeah. is, folks, this is going to happen. That's what Braden said. He said it probably. End up next year or yeah. in 2015 in the in 2015 the or 2016. Yeah, probably 2015. This right. will be in the so I do, it's happening so I do rapidly. feel really bad for the same sex couples uh, that that yeah. are going to have to wait on those marriage licenses. But you're not going to have to wait much longer. In fact, my wife shared a story of some people she knew through CFI that uh, they had been fighting, uh, advocating for this a same sex couple. And uh, uh, one of the partners died just last oh, week. No. And, you know, you <laughs> you hear that and you're just like, this is not coming quick enough mm, for some. Yeah. And uh, but, man, I'm glad that, that it's it's definitely yeah. changing. I've got good friends who's who's informal marriage I performed uh, last fall who were very excited and were they got online immediately to to get a marriage license. And unfortunately, going to have to wait. Can you retroactively solemnize? solemnize? Oh, I, I can't. Wow. <laughs> Can you retroactively sodomize again? <laughs> With a time machine. I suppose if they ask nicely. Um, but uh, it's this oh is very God. important and this is a huge win and I think it's a huge win for the – not just Michigan but the cause in general. Yeah. A couple other uh, quotes from uh, the judge's ruling here that – I thought we had to share here. One, this is from the New York Times article. In attempting to define this case as a challenge to the will of the people, he wrote, state state defendants lost sight of what this case is truly about, people. Mm-hmm. And this, here's the one for our listeners. I swear he wrote it just for us. <laughs> this is the judge here? Mm-hmm. Many Michigan residents have religious convictions whose principles govern the conduct of their daily lives and inform their own viewpoints about marriage. Nonetheless, these views cannot strip other citizens of the guarantees of equal protection under the law. <laughs> Amen. Well done. <sighs> so, so happy to, uh, to have that coming from a federal judge. Yeah. I remember how dejected we were in Michigan here in 2004, the night that that I, was passed and that uh, Bush won a re-election. I remember sitting it, at an yeah. election party, and it, it was a, a group of theater people, so mm-hmm. we were fairly invested in uh, in the yeah. gay marriage amendment, and just yeah, it was the room was just went terrible. down. And I wish I could go send a little telegram through time to all of us mm-hmm. and just say, you know what. 
just hang on, guys. Ten Keep years. on fighting, and you know this is going to be a sweet victory one day. And, and as straight people, it's really easy for us to be like, oh man, it's it's so close. We're going to get there soon, but. I mean, this has been 10 years since yeah. this amendment. Yeah. Yeah. It's a long time. Yeah. And there's a lot of people who have suffered for it. But uh, we're getting there. Hey, we got to see it in our lifetime. We got to see this bigotry turned around. Absolutely. Well, let's turn now to some counter-apologetics. Hide your faith from the light of reason. It's now time for Counter Apologetics. For uh, today's Counter Apologetics, uh, we're going to be looking at an argument by uh, Dr. J.L. Schellenberg. J.L. Schellenberg is professor of philosophy at Mount St. Vincent University, and I believe it was 1993, he wrote a book uh, which is still hugely influential in philosophy of religion called uh, Divine Hiddenness and Human Reason. And in this book, Schellenberg argues that certain kinds of, of non-belief are incompatible with the existence of a God as traditionally defined, right? A God that's omnipotent, omniscient, and perfectly loving. Using unbelievers as evidence that there isn't yes. a God. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Um, and so, the, so the argument is called divine hiddenness, and so I'm going to give a kind of a crash course of, of, on this argument today. And it's been called other things. Uh, people refer to it as the argument from unbelief, the argument from non-resistant non-believers, or inculpable unbelief. I love that the problem of yeah. non-resistant unbelievers. <laughs> <laughs> to set up the argument, a lot of people are going to have different ideas of what the entailments of a perfectly loving being might be, hmm. but. Uh, it seems pretty obvious that if perfectly loving is to mean anything, there are some kind of core essentials that we can agree on and, and, on as to what this would entail. To unpack this, we want to go to those kinds of relationships that are familiar to us. So we might want to look at human relationships like uh, the relationship between a parent and a child. Schellenberg writes, quote, The perfectly loving parent, for example, from the time the child can first respond to her at all, uh, until death separates them, will, insofar as she can help it, see to it that nothing she ever does puts relationship with herself out of reach for her child. A perfectly loving being would not suffocate or force a relationship on the child. Also, uh, just don't suffocate the child. <laughs> also, yeah, 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 also don't suffocate Good rule of thumb. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, they don't tell you that when you, <laughs> no, you become no. a parent. <laughs> and they really should. Don't Absolutely. shake. Don't push the soft spot. But nothing about not suffocating. <laughs> yep. Don't drop. It's just about you know not forcing a relationship because obviously legitimate relationships are two-way streets. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, the child – might shut themselves off relationally from the parent. But again, the perfectly loving parent would never take such steps themselves. When we take that kind of understanding of what it would mean to be perfectly loving, right, that kind of just basic core that pretty much anyone can agree on, and if they're not, they're not using, they're not, they're referring to some other word other than perfectly loving. This is how a lot of theistic arguments work from analogy. We're supposed to understand God's traits by analogy to our own human versions of these Mm -hmm. traits. So we're we're totally warranted to think this way. Yeah. So you always hear, you know, um, God is our heavenly father, right? So they're always talking about um, Mm -hmm. this kind of uh, relationship between a, a parent and a child. So now that we've looked at what that might mean for human relationships if a parent was perfectly loving, when we bring that to God, that 
ever important qualifier insofar as they are able, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that falls away, right? When we're talking about God, we're talking about an omnipotent being, mm-hmm. a being who is not limited in the so power. So able is so the, so insofar as they are able is is not is no yeah. longer a relevant qualifier. We can say that you know a perfectly loving God, if it existed, would want a relationship with the creatures He loved because. Uh, that would uh, allow those creatures um, to gain access to enormous spiritual benefits. Mm. So, for example, in the case of Christianity, you have you know different salvific uh, powers. And secondly, the creatures would value this relationship for its own sake. And, of course, the God being would, would as well. Mm. After all, that's usually the reason being referred to as to why God created in the first place. So here's a, a quote by Schellenberg here talking about this perfectly loving uh, in the context of a personal God. So if there is a personal God who is perfectly loving, creatures capable of explicit and positively meaningful relationship with God who have not freely shut themselves off from God are always in a position to participate in such a relationship, able to do so just by trying. So a- another qualifier in here we want to look at is who have not freely shut themselves off from God. Back to the case of humans, if your child is resistant to a relationship, you're not going to force them to have a relationship with you, right? As a parent, of course, you're still obligated to keep them safe, right. but you're not going to be like, no, be my friend. You know, you, you can't, you, you can only do that so much. You have to wait until they're ready to enter into that relationship. Um, so, in the, so the same goes for God. If, if you're resistant to the idea, God isn't He's really going, force yeah, he can't be expected to, to, to force a relationship sure. on you. Now, what's important, of course, is that if it's the case that God would always make it the case the creatures whom he loved were always in a position to enter into a relationship with him, as long as they were not resistant, we need to kind of unpack what that would mean. What, what do we mean by being in a position to enter into a relationship with God? Well, clearly for anybody to be in a position to exercise our capacity for meaningful conscious relationships with anybody else, we have to, of course, first believe that the other person exists. That kind of seems to be a necessary condition here. Um, it helps, sure. Though I still kind of think of Jean-Luc Picard as my uh, as my long-lost grandpa, even though I don't believe he exists. But I so want that to be true. But, but Jeremy, he's in the future. He does exist You're in his the future. Grandfather. He does. Maybe. I should move to France. And you probably don't <laughs> believe in a tense theory of time, yeah. <laughs> so, like, he still exists. Okay. That's, that's true. <laughs> Wibbly wobbly, timey wimey. Okay. <laughs> timey wimey. Mm-hmm. Now that we recognize that to be in a position to enter into a relationship requires belief in that person, then we can state the, the issue more explicitly. Schellenberg writes, If there's a perfectly loving God, creatures capable of relationship with God who do not resist God will always be in possession of such belief. That is to say that God would always provide causally sufficient reasons for non-resistant persons to believe in God. Um, And he he puts it beautifully here. He says, The presence of God will be for them like a light. However much the degree of its brightness may fluctuate, remains on unless they close their eyes. The argument in full goes like this. Premise one. If a perfectly loving God exists, he would ensure that all capable creatures whom he loved would always be in a position to enter into a meaningful conscious relationship with him so long as they are not resistant. In other words, premise one, there would be no non-resistant unbelievers. Premise two, at least one non-resistant unbeliever exists. And then, of course, conclusion, therefore, there can be no perfectly loving God. Now, 
I guess most are going to probably challenge premise two. Are there any really, truly non-resistant unbelievers? Because maybe sin has blinded all of our hearts. And The problem with this, though, is that if, if we're talking about the bare concept of God and we're kind of unpacking, uh, we're kind of going from the, the concept outwards, we can't just assume our theology. Right. Uh, we so you can't to, appeal to Romans or, right, or something and say, exactly. yeah, so everyone's you would need, had a chance. You would need to point to some fact about the world independent of your theology yeah. that shows that all persons who are not Christians are necessarily resistant. It can't. It's not enough to say that there's a large tendency among non-Christians mm. to kind of be deceptive and uh, you know lie to themselves, because all this argument requires is one individual who's genuinely open-minded. And of course, no statistics in the world are going to get you to an absolute statement about right. what all non-Christians are believing. So again, so uh, there is there seems to be no non-question begging reason to think that this would be true. Yeah. If we follow the the principle of credulity here, exactly, which a lot of this these theological arguments depend on, mm-hmm. then we need to admit people's own inner testimony. And I think there's everybody at this table didn't leave the faith going, well, screw that. I never wanted to believe right. that in the first place. Most of us tried really hard for a while, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. to maintain belief. I mean, I remember. I remember nights on my knees crying, you know, praying to God. I just give me the faith. I I can't. I don't yeah. understand what's happening to me. Yeah, I think I think the belief that you know that we're all non-resistant just doesn't take it. Just doesn't take the issue seriously. I, it's it's obviously the case that that a lot of non-believers do mourn their loss of faith, at least at first. Yes. Yeah, we wish we could have that relationship. Because right. a lot of the times that's our I'm only glad, social structure. I'm glad I got yeah. past that phase. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> because because it found out life was much better on the other side. Yeah. But uh but yeah, that yeah. doesn't that doesn't invalidate my initial experience. Right. Another thing to point out is that uh if they truly believe if, if say you know if it, say that this argument comes up in a, a debate context and and you're going back and forth giving rational arguments and they're giving rational arguments you know and you're having this this intellectual conversation and then they respond with that is it not entirely appropriate to ask why on earth are you bringing rational arguments why are you bringing tools to a project that you think those tools are not going to work? You know, why are you bring like why are you engaging in a conversation with someone who you believe is closed-minded? Right. So the mere fact, and this is something I pointed out in my debate with Horner, the mere fact that someone is coming to a gathering and and, and announcing these arguments and and showing you how these inferences are apparently going to work. This presupposes that they do believe that people are sensitive to arguments right. and evidence, right. at least in principle, willing to change their mind. They're, Unless you're they're talking to Calvinists, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. but yes, outside of outside of sure. Calvin, in the sure. sphere outside Calvinism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, wait, wait yes, there's are, stuff outside you are correct. Calvin. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you wouldn't you wouldn't think that. In so, in a way, this is a kind of. <laughs> Presuppositionalism. Their, their actions clearly betray the fact that they yeah. believe that there are rational right. atheists out yeah. there. Right. <laughs> Another response is that uh, that if God were to reveal Himself to us, that this would uh, severely infringe upon our free will. Uh, as philosopher Theodore Drange writes, "Quote: People's free will is not affected by merely learning or being shown the truth about something, even God. In other words, mere belief." does not compel one to enter into a relationship with God. 
Uh, one need only point to Satan in Christian theology as a counterexample, right? Mm-hmm. Um, sure. So clearly it's not the case that just because one believes that therefore they would be obligated to or that they would feel like this thwart of their own will yeah. to enter into relationship. Uh, the argument perfectly permits that there are clearly people who are uh, who do believe but who have uh, either entered into a relationship with God or, or have not or are resistant to it. Mm-hmm. Um, another response, and again, this is a kind of um, fairly – simple unpacking of the argument there's a there's other responses that are more detailed but um the third response i want to talk about is uh that you know this is kind of putting unrealistic demands on god um that if if we don't believe we can't expect god to like write his name in the stars or something to that effect that like we're just being supremely arrogant by even asking that god uh do these things I've heard that yeah, we song dance lots of times. It's, it's not right to test God. To exactly. Ask him for yeah. To demand some kind of evidence. And I've heard atheists use this too. Like, you know, what, God should have written John 3.16 on the surface of the moon or right. something. If, if or the, wanted, I'm like, oh, well, that's all right. <laughs> but um, as Schellenberg points out, that that's, that's not at all what the argument says. This is just mm-hmm. a straw man of the argument. Yeah. Uh, Schellenberg writes, it doesn't take much imagination to see how non-resistant non-belief in its various forms could be prevented through the provision of more subtle and interesting forms of evidence, such as religious experience, Mm -hmm. whose character and force are modulated according to our intellectual needs. So, again, this is just about uh, God, you know, if God existed, he would provide causally sufficient reasons and it doesn't need to be a publicly available thing, you know. It doesn't need to be that. It can be just a inner witness of the Holy Spirit, you know, as, as William Lane Craig would endorse. Mm-hmm. These kinds of things are, are perfectly available to the to the divine, and so it seems to be no reason why there should be genuinely non-resistant non-belief. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the argument, essentially. There's a lot more to the argument from divine hiddenness that might be fun to talk about on future episodes. Yeah, because there's a lot I think of we've specific al- yeah. facts within hiddenness. We've alluded to this earlier on the show, but the kind of the demographics of belief Absolutely. don't match up with what we would expect. Yeah, so there's the general um, fact of non-resistant non-belief, and then there's more particular facts, like you said, the geographic distribution of belief. And there's a few other uh, facts, like the fact that God remains silent when when theists are facing uh, emotional turmoil, hmm. things like that that really pull away from from a kind of a rational ascent to yeah. theism. And when you take uh, the the whole the combined force of all those arguments together, I actually yeah. think it it presents a underutilized but very good case against belief. It, it Absolutely, should be fun to explore that in further episodes. More divine hiddenness coming your way. Well, uh, Justin, in counter-apologetics, you were talking about the way a perfectly loving parent would behave. And uh, interestingly, completely coincidentally, in polyatheism, we're going to take a look at a perfectly loving child. Aw, dang. Uh Uh-huh. Oftentimes in mythology, we encounter women who fall into one of two categories, the angel or the slut, a goddess who is chaste and pure and only ever sleeps with her husband to make a baby, or a goddess who, shall we say in a sex-positive way, is sexually liberated. 
The Madonna-whore dichotomy is just one aspect of the rampant misogyny we find in both mythology and, since myths are derived from and influence the cultures they come out of, anthropology. Every so often, though, a goddess comes along that defies that dichotomy, refusing to be so easily pigeonholed and defines herself on her own terms. This is not one of those times. <laughs> I offer up to you... Back to the mythological slut shaming. Uh, no, no slut shaming this time. Uh, I offer up to you the story of the Chinese goddess Mio Shan, the woman who out-Madonna's marry herself. Damn. <laughs> Impressive. Mio Shan is the third daughter of a mythic Chinese king. Now... Ancient Chinese nobility had only slightly more use for their daughters than modern People's Republic does, in that, oh. it's sad but true, in that if you had a daughter, uh, they couldn't be your heir, but you could marry them off to make some political alliances and could gain some money or power by selling off your daughter to a husband. Traditional marriage. Absolutely. Uh, Mio Shan's uh, two older sisters complied with their father's wishes and married the suitors he had chosen for them. Mio Shan, though, in defiance of her father, refused to marry. It wasn't about the potential husbands he had in mind for her, but Mio Shan had a holier destiny in mind. She wanted to be a nun. Her father had nothing against Buddhist nuns in theory, but letting one of his daughters marry Buddha? Uh, I'm not sure how it works with Buddhists. That's actually. not how it works with Buddhists. Uh, <laughs> I figure not. But but uh, yeah, letting her daughter take refuge in the yeah. three refuges yeah. does, doesn't have the same kind of... <laughs> no, no. Uh, anyway, by not marrying his daughter to some aristocrat, the king stood to lose a lot of potential power. And while often these stories show us how good girls are compliant girls and do what the men in their lives tell them to do, even if that means taking on great suffering, that's not the case here. You see, obedience to her religion trumps obedience to her father in this instance. So Mio Shan still lands in the good girl category despite being a daughter with a mind of her own. No, no, not my kids, I tell you. She did offer to marry at one point uh, if he insisted, but she would only marry a doctor. So she was Jewish. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas I'd be thrilled if one of my daughters married a doctor, especially if it's a lady doctor. Daddy, I Uh, I might marry, but only only a doctor. doctor. (laughs) It wasn't nearly as lofty a position then as it is now. It was, you know, it was someone who worked with their hands. It wasn't an aristocrat. So there's no glory or power to be gained from that. Um, But she wanted to help people. Her father thought that idea was even worse than going into the nunnery, so finally he relented and allowed her to become a nun, but only because he had a plan that would send her screaming back home and into whatever marriage he picked for her. Before she went into the nunnery, he convinced the other nuns to treat his daughter like crap. Which you'd think Buddhist nuns would be kind of reluctant to do something like that. <laughs> but here, not so much. They just went for it. In the literature of the Chan and Zen traditions, there's stories of Buddhist nuns who face adversity mm-hmm. and overcome it. 
one of my favorite little Zen texts is about a woman who was very beautiful, became a nun. Because of all the kind of prejudice and sexual temptations and other things, they were going to kick her out and she ended up scarring her own beauty. Mm, trying yeah, to yeah. show which which I mean is a ghastly story, I guess, by today's standards, but the but the notion was that she was so committed she didn't care about her beauty. Exactly. And if this was causing a problem for other people, she it was their fault. And she was showing that uh she could let go of this even though they couldn't. Hmm. And uh there's a number of stories like that. Yeah, this is right um, in that tradition. Uh, so apparently they did face a bit of prejudice, mm-hmm. and uh, but others noted their their acts of devotion and made examples out of them. Right, right. So they were to give her all of the worst jobs. Like I don't know what's worse than just being a nun. How, how long it did you brainstorm seems, for this? Time? I don't know. I tried to come up with something, but I mean, nuns. Uh, everything they do is awful. Um, <laughs> I mean, in a, ooh, that's dirty, ooh, sponge bathing a leper, ooh, I don't want to do that. I was going to say, nuns are are some of the happiest people out there, according to our social psych studies. Buddhist nuns, though? Probably even more so. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because Buddhism and happiness never go together. (laughs) Um, So whatever it is that's the worst, they saved it for her. (laughs) All right. But you know what? She took it with a smile. She happily did all the terrible things they asked her to do, and she did it so well that the gods took notice and stepped in to help her out because they wanted to make sure that other people would volunteer for crappy jobs. If she got stuck with everything, no one would want to do it. So the gods come in and they're like, I will help you water the garden. So, yeah, good of the the Buddhist gods to help out in that way. This made the king so angry that he ordered the entire nunnery to be burned to the ground. Jesus. Yeah. As they went up in flames, the other nuns blamed Mioshan for the death and destruction. I blame you. Ah. And she agreed with them. Yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> she and and then there's this weird ritual where she sticks a pin in the top of her mouth and spits out blood towards the heavens as a way of saying this is Watch my come fault. Back. Punish me, not everyone else. And uh, dear God, this is like the ending of every Chinese movie I've ever right? seen. Yeah, they, they always end in these. Oh, horrible, it gets even more grisly, self-effacing tragedies. Mm-hmm. And then, because she does this, the gods send rain, and it puts out the fire of the nunnery, and everyone survives. Oh, that's cool. So then, her father decides to have her executed. Uh, you, they drag her out into the woods. They try to chop off her head, but the moment uh, the sword touches her, it shatters. So finally, one guy has to just take a, a satin rope and choke her out with it. But as soon as she's dead, a tiger leaps out of the woods, scares away her executioners, and throws her corpse on its back. Just because, why not, right? Yeah. So, Mioshan's spirit ends up in hell, or whatever the Buddhist equivalent of hell is. Uh, the bad place, right? But even there, she continues to raise the bar on goodness. She extinguishes the eternal flames. Just waters them. <laughs> no one out. thought of that about this <laughs> yeah, before. Exactly. Like, like, whoa. Why did we do that earlier? Uh, she turns weapons of torture into beautiful flowers. She feeds the hungry. She administers to the suffering, etc., etc., etc. God, and, hell's just not sounding that bad anymore. Well, and that's the problem, is that they eventually have to toss her out of hell because she's made it a paradise and they have a reputation to uphold. They're like... 
dude, you're you're ruining our vibe here. Yeah, mm-hmm. get out. Poor woman, she's doing everything to make people's lives better, and everyone <laughs> hates her for it. Keep <laughs> kicking her around. So she returns to the land of the living to find that her father, the guy who had her killed and torched a nunnery in a previous attempt to have her killed, is now dying. Now, were I in that position, I'd be about as concerned as I would be if I found out, well, my dad were dying, but he's a bad person. Or Fred Phelps. Uh, but but not Mio Shan. You see, it turns out uh, that the only thing that can cure dear old dad is a medicine made from the arms and eyes of someone completely without hate. I figured it oh. would be some sort of bullshit like that. <laughs> Eastern medicine. Yeah. Am I right? Uh. How how freaky would it be if it turned out that's how they make Tylenol? <laughs> and that's why we never see people without hate because they've all been killed to make Tylenol. I think you're onto something. Now, I, I think you were enjoying some of that Michigan medical marijuana when you came up with that idea. Mm, I plead the fifth. Uh, he already asked his two older daughters, but like Goneril and Regan, the daughters of King Lear, they turned their backs on their father when he needed them most. But Mio Shan, the third daughter, without being asked, lopped off her arms and scoops out her eyes. Probably not in that yeah, order. Yeah, Probably I not in that so. order. Yeah. And the second arm's going to be a real challenge. Yeah, anyways. right? And Even with eyes. And no eyes. That's I don't... Maybe someone did it for her. I'm not sure. She's got assistance. Yeah. And they, uh, they made it into a medicine and her father was cured. When he found out where the cure came from, he ran to his daughter and embraced her. Something but she nice. did not embrace Sadly, him. She could not <laughs> What uh, a bitch. <laughs> Jeremy just dropped the mic and left the room. Um, I'm back. <laughs> the ultimate lesson we're supposed to learn from this story is that a child's love for their parent is supposed to be unconditional. Okay? <laughs> so you, you tell that one to your little brood yeah. each evening? It doesn't work. It, for the record, <laughs> Little though, V, would you cut off your arms for me? <laughs> what? <laughs> then I then I guess you're not a good enough daughter. You're going to have to work harder. Oh, and, and Christian parents listening to this, you, you – Deserve no better. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus is all about lopping yeah, off absolutely. arms and plucking out eyes if it'll <laughs> yeah. keep you uh, from going to hell. That's the, yeah. I, for me, though, I mean, I might ask one of my kids for a kidney or something if they have two yeah, of. bone marrow transplant. Yeah, but if if they need to lose their arms and eyes so I can live a just few more one, years, just one, just one. One of each. That, that's, okay, maybe that's... one of each. Um, but you want to have like the right eye and the left arm because that balances better. Yeah, but you know, I... symmetrical distribution. And then just and then and then sever the corpus callosum and just see what happens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Donate half your brain. Oh, science jokes are the best. Anyway, uh, for this act and for all of the others, uh, Miyoshan is. Elevated to status of goddess of mercy, appropriately enough. And eventually she merges with the goddess Kuan Yin, or she who hears the cries of the world and will help you when you're studying for exams, by the by. And through merging with Kuan Yin becomes an even more powerful goddess who has, by the way, like a thousand arms. So totally made up for that lopping off her arms thing, too. Mm-hmm. So there you have it. Mio Shan, Chinese goddess of mercy, loving daughter, and long-suffering nun, and just one more goddess worth not believing in. 
The resident doctor, Professor Luke Galen, may not be with us today, but that doesn't mean we can't have a little God thinks like you anyways. And we have some interesting studies about the link between religion and depression for this week's episode. In some ways, these different studies throw a bit of a monkey wrench into some of the things we've talked about on the show. They don't really contradict previous findings we've discussed, but they do make them more nuanced and complex. So for a little bit of context, if you've listened to this show and paid attention to the God Thinks Like You segments, you will be very familiar with the idea that the social psychology of religion does suggest that religious people and religious countries have happier citizens and lower rates of depression. Mm. But as we've talked about on the show, almost all of that boils down to religion as social support. You get the strongest correlations between mental health and religiosity when you measure church attendance. But there might be some other variables in play. We've discussed again uh, that the content of one's beliefs probably don't make that big of a difference. But the degree of conviction you have in those beliefs can make a huge difference. So people who tend to be more confident of their worldviews, this goes along with terror management theory that we've discussed a lot on the show. People who are confident with their worldviews tend to be more secure against fears of death, uh, against fears of all sorts and tend to have better mental health because of it. Well, this new study came out last year, and it's discussed on uh, the fantastic blog Epiphenom by Tom Reese. We've had him on the show before. That that blog is epiphenomenal. It is. Mm-hmm. 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 Tom Reese covered these very well, and he's kind of like my Luke substitute. So this first study interviewed more than 8,000 patients who, who didn't have depression, uh, these were in countries from Chile to Estonia, the Netherlands, Portugal, UK, Spain, Slovenia. So actually not a U.S.-based study, which is nice to get those every once in a I while. I think you slipped some fake countries in there. <laughs> Slovenia? Come <Yes>. on. <laughs> Look it up. Isn't that where Dr. Doom lives? Then what they did is they did a kind of uh, uh, a mini longitudinal study, I guess you could say. Uh, they interviewed these people again at six and 12 months later after uh, after uh, their first interview to basically track over time incidences of depression. And this study was unlike many of the others in that it found that they found that religious people were could become more depressed than the non-religious. They found Modest correlations, those who had a secular outlook, 7% of them reported major depressive episodes during that time. But those who said they actively practiced religion showed 10.3%. So not a huge effect, but definitely a statistically significant one. Religion poisons everything. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And this this one's weird. Those who had a spiritual worldview, 10.5% experienced a major depressive episode. So more than the seculars. But what was really fascinating is when they adjusted for all these other variables that play a role in depression, so age, sex, education, employment, social support, so they got that in there. What they found was almost all the religious effects vanished. So really religion doesn't buffet against any kind of risk of depression. But one clear predictor still stood out, those who said they had a spiritual worldview. So this is one of the first indications we have that we've actually talked about on the show, that the content of your beliefs can have an impact here. Those who said they had a spiritual worldview, and this was the other weird quirk, their risk for depression went up as the confidence in their worldview went up. 
which what? is strange. That's not That's what we typically strange. see. Uh, the risk of depression for those who were only weakly religious was 7.4 percent, whereas those who were strong believers, it actually rose to 12.5. Wow. So a bigger jump than we yeah. saw even before. So this raises some interesting questions. What's what's going on with those who strongly believe that might be prompting this to happen? Okay, so what I'm about to say is a uh, it's not a very firm conclusion. This is a speculation based on the data, but we have seen kind of wrinkles in this terror management theory approach before. Uh, the idea is confidence in your worldview should lower your fear of death and everything. Well, there are exceptions to that data. For example, Muslims never fit into that frame very well. It seemed that Muslims who are very confident of their worldviews uh, did not receive any kind of existential benefit from that confidence. And people <laughs> speculated it might have to do with the stronger belief in hell and a kind of weaker version of heaven. It may be driven by a kind of something about the content of their beliefs, particularly their beliefs uh, on heaven and hell, which brings us to our next study. This study is by the uh, lead author of uh, Sharif, which, uh, or Sharif, I'm not even sure how you say it, but this guy's mentioned in almost every other episode of God Thinks Like You. This is one of the lead researchers in psychology of religion. <laughs> they aggregated information from dozens and dozens of countries across the globe. They demonstrated that belief in hell tends to make people very unhappy. In fact, it has a it has a stronger effect in the unhappy direction than belief in heaven has in a positive oh, direction. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Hmm. I noticed everybody was rolling their eyes during the first claim. Belief in hell makes people unhappy. Like, <laughs> yeah, thanks, oh, science. Uh, <laughs> way to go. Right, but the interesting things are in the details. And what they figured out was some of the weird scores they were getting. Like, how can you get a population that is highly religious but it shows a lot of happiness and then you have these other countries that are highly religious but then show a lot of unhappiness. Well, what they figured out is you know, modern Christianity might be throwing this off because there's an awful lot of people who believe in heaven but have dropped their belief in hell. Right. So what they came up with is this concept called heaven surplus. <laughs> so it's, it's pretty simple. What they did was they took your number of people who believed in heaven, subtracted from that the number of people who believed in hell. This gives you your figure of your heaven, your heaven surplus. surplus. Mm -hmm. And then uh, what they can do is then standardize that. And uh, they found that countries with high heaven surpluses tended to have the hot, happier population. They also found those who believed in hell uh, tended to be less satisfied with their lives and experienced less well-being. Belief in heaven had a positive effect in the in the opposite direction. So they re reproduced this not just from data from the countries, but they tried to reproduce this in a laboratory experiment. And uh, as you might expect, quote, participants who wrote about hell reported significantly less happiness and more sadness than those who wrote about heaven or the neutral condition. But they also found that writing about heaven had no effect on happiness at all in the experimental measure, wow. which was interesting. And atheists were also susceptible to the effect. Hmm. So atheists who had to write about hell were diminished happiness? Yes, wow. diminished happiness. So they kind of, uh, yeah, had a – which is not almost any kind of priming studies yield similar yeah. effects for atheists. I mean, so they just concepts. tend to be more pronounced for, uh, for the religious. Part of the problem with the study though was 
Well, first of all, there's huge cultural differences in what people understand heaven to mean, and that could be throwing off the data. A bit. Yeah. And the magnitude wasn't exactly huge. Part of the problem was they have a hard time, you know, kind of figuring out the causality here. You, you could at least imagine a situation in which people are depressed and sad, and so they stop believing in heaven. This wasn't really, you know, designed to tease out the causality. Nevertheless, the researchers said this this could be a possible explanation as to why hell beliefs are being dropped in many successful they make people countries. Sad. It tends to be, you know, these uh, the countries that ha- already have pretty good wealth mm-hmm. and a bit of a social safety net. Um, they find it easier to drop these hell beliefs, maybe because they are finding social support elsewhere. Yeah. Quoting Tom Reese, Sheriff and Ankin reckon that this might explain why hell beliefs are on the wane. In the past, people believed in hell in order to keep society safe. But with the establishment of rule-following, well-policed government nations, that need for hell ebbed away. So people dropped their sadness-inducing beliefs. Now, actually, Reese shows some skepticism, and I do too, towards Sheriff's notion that belief in hell really was useful in curbing antisocial behavior. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, uh, another study that is related to this showed a clear link between fear and hell. And this did try to tease out, or at least it did a bit, to tease out the causal direction of this relationship. These researchers weren't specifically studying just fear and religion. They were trying to – this was a team – led by Daniel Traceman from UCLA, and they wanted to create a fearfulness index of nations. Like, to what degree are nations, peoples, fearful? Which I think would be interesting data uh, for a number of things. The United States has got to be the, the top. We are just a scared people all the I time. would think so. We're scared of everything. And what they found was that, predictably, about fear, one of the major conclusions of this study is fear tends to be a social construct. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't match up quite well with realities. With danger levels. Yeah, or, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, for example, they talked about uh, uh, BSE, this problem of uh, you know mad cow disease and that sort of thing. By the with, way, our terror level in the studio is orange. Oh, really? So just, yeah, just letting you know. So, so that means there's cleaners in the building? I'm <laughs> <laughs> the level uh, index in here. Uh, Bob, the owner, is here, is red. Uh, cleaners, orange. First, what they had to control for, and this was great too, is that somebody who tends to be fearful about one thing is just generally fearful about everything. <laughs> so so it, a lot of it boils down to just temperament of individuals. Mm. But once they could control for that, they could create their index and uh, and look at this across nations. And one of the relationships that they didn't expect to find that came out of this was a, a pretty strong predictor of fear. Uh, was not danger so much as religious beliefs and the content mm. of some religious beliefs. And they could even kind of break down a fear index of different religions. For example, Catholic countries were more fearful than Protestant countries. Greece, the uh, only Orthodox country in the measurement, was the most fearful of all. Even more important than religious affiliation was belief in heaven and hell. Belief in heaven tended to lower fear a little bit, but belief in hell tended to increase fear quite a bit in the opposite direction. And in fact, those countries where people believed in hell, uh, Tom Reese says, were more fearful across the range of potential threats. 
much of the apparent relationship between religious traditions and fear could be explained by the degree of hell belief. This was even after the study's authors adjusted for all sorts of factors like like poverty, authoritarianism in the country, war, even some you know more mundane measures like educational styles in that country or uh, cultural notions of masculinity or individualism. They did a really good job of trying to uh, rule out all the other factors, but religion there stayed as a pretty prominent relationship. So if you tie all these studies together – we're getting a more rich look at what's going on here. It is your social support that probably matters first and the degree of confidence you have in your belief that matters second. But also the content of your beliefs does make an impact on your fearfulness level and belief in a divine wrathful punishment that awaits sinners does not make people happy. It makes them more fearful and it's not surprising that uh, more secure populations then tend to find no need for those hell beliefs any longer. So something to think about for this week's God Thinks Like You. And now let's finish up with a Stranger Than Fiction. Muslim leaders issue a fatwa against anyone living on Mars. <laughs> As there is no righteous reason to be there. This article... <laughs> well, that takes care of the problem of how do you pray towards Mecca. Because <laughs> <laughs> nice. that was going to be a bitch for those guys up there. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, this article comes from the Daily Mail but still appears to be legitimate. <laughs> you got to be careful. Um, yeah, clerics from the uh, uh, United Arab Emirates have deemed a colony on Mars as being un-Islamic. Who knew? Yeah. It's a good thing Muhammad left for us in, in his example. <laughs> That's right. Uh, the Hadith talks about why Muslims should never be Martians. What? What about Uranus? Can uh, can Muslims explore Uranus? <laughs> no, no. Uh, I'm pretty sure they're not allowed to do that either. <laughs> the uh, the article says, "quote The committee argued that an attempt to dwell on the planet would be so hazardous as to be suicidal, and killing oneself is not permitted by Islam." Yeah, let's uh, just stress that one, shall we? Killing oneself is not permitted by Islam, according to these clerics. There was a, there was a Jewish rabbi I saw in the comments who had a, <laughs> um, a snarky little statement to the effect of, um, glad to hear that a fatwa has finally been issued against suicide on other planets. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's about as far as we need to go with this article, isn't it? I mean... No Muslims on Mars because well, and how did you find this? Like, what on Muslims earth were you googling? In this is, space. This <laughs> <laughs> that's that's going to be our which first green screen production, which is not halal. Muslims because, in space. Uh, it's not halal. No, this is what a Jeremy's <laughs> finds. I don't know where this came from, but uh, the Daily Mail originally. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Mail. So, I mean, I guess the biggest problem with this is that they're assuming that if you go to Mars. You're gonna die. Which yeah, I mean, the you, fatwa you is will on, die eventually. The fatwa is only against a one-way trip, right? Which is the uh, only. presumably, if they have the means to get us back, it'll be totally cool, and we will have Muslims, Muslims well, in space. <laughs> 
What they say is,、uh, quote, such a one-way journey poses a real-life risk to life. <laughs> And that, because Muslims hate one-way journeys, one-way ticket. Islam, <laughs> there is that's so uh, terrible. Terrorism is funny. Oh, I'm a terrible person. Well, if the Jews go there first, then all bets are off. <laughs>、yeah. Do whatever you have to do. They're going to really regret this in the future when a bunch of Jews go there and establish colonies and get there first for once. Right, right, right. Because <laughs> then they're not going to be able to say like, "Hey, look this、uh, this barren, forsaken landscape. We have a natural we, claim to." We、this. were here first. So、um, yeah, no Muslims, Muslims in space on their way to Mars anytime soon. But. That's it. That'll do it for、uh, this episode.、Um, in the meantime, you can go to doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com/reasonabledoubts, where you can download past episodes, comment on past and current episodes. I suppose. Yeah. So、uh, if this if this comes out early enough, if you're、um, hearing this in time, and yeah. If you're hearing this in time, years later, if you're hearing this on Monday, <laughs> yes, Tuesday night in Ann Arbor, Michigan, I'll be debating、uh, the existence of God with Scott Symington at the Michigan League Ballroom at 8 p.m. on、uh, Tuesday, the 25th of March. So of 2014. If you're listening to this in time, I like how your debate titles get kind of shorter and shorter each time. <laughs> this this one is God or No God. <laughs> <laughs> Not is Christianity rational, or does, does <laughs> do we have reasons to accept God? Believe now, this, this one is、uh, theism or no naturalism.、God. Where does the evidence fall on balance? <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! So yeah, if you, I'm sure we've got lots of listeners out in、uh, the the middle of the mitten, as it were. So、uh, if you get a chance, go check out、uh, Justin in Ann Arbor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the twenty fifth of March, twenty fourteen. If you're hearing this too late, you could probably download the audio of it somewhere. On、so. the mitt, it's right where、uh, Jesus' hand would have been pierced. Actually,、yeah. a little bit north. Yeah. No, just, Ann Arbor. No, Ann Arbor smack in the、uh, stigmata. Yeah. Oh, more guys, to the right, Lansing. If you got to consider that they well, would have anchored it more in the wrist. Well, yeah, I mean, it, if you go just a little、oh, north, see, technically、see. it would have been anchored entirely in the wrist, and it would have been. All right, we need nails. We need nails. We need to get、yeah. this right. <laughs> oh, Michigan humor. So uh, you can uh, send us any comments, questions, challenges, etc. to doubtcast at gmail dot com. Check out Public Reality Radio, our home station at publicrealityradio.org. Hey guys, we got Ralph Nader. We are the second station in the country to broadcast the Ralph no Nader、way. Radio Hour. He is doing、What? a weekly radio show. So, for those of you interested in that, if you don't know how amazing Ralph Nader is, you need to go watch the Drunken History on、uh, on Ralph <laughs> yeah, Nader. Yeah, you do. That was that was, that was fantastic.、Yeah. <laughs> uh, which reminds me of another plug.、Uh, I'm starting a series called、um, Stoned Mythology. Oh God!、Uh, <laughs> I think that would be a great. I think we need to do drunk theology. <laughs> drunk, drunk philosophy of religion. Get drunk on wine, <clears throat> blood of Christ, boys. Anyway,、uh, we'll be back soon with more reasonable deaths. Your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past reasonable doubts episodes, or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.
The movie is called God is Not Dead. Uh, yes. I wrote down God is Dead, but that would be <laughs> God's Not Dead, like Punk's Not Dead. Right. <clears throat> that song is catchy, though. I'll give them that. Oh, come on. No. Easy talk. Hey, I loved them when I was little. Oh, gosh. <laughs> We need to find whatever little Christian parts of your brain are still operating. <laughs> Target them for destruction. 